0: In most cultures, you inherit something from your parents. Inheritance, that word, it's a promise, right? You you, uh, are born into a family and you're gonna get something at the end when your parents die. Well, in most cultures, it's a promise. Some parents, all they have to offer is um, hopefully some good rearing and maybe some education. I don't anticipate getting much of an inheritance for my parents. <laughs> that's, not what they, that's not what they've contributed to my life. Um, but some people, they have lots to give. And uh, it's interesting that some of the wealthiest people in the United States today have decided to not give their children an inheritance. Uh, for instance, Warren Buffett says this, I still believe in the philosophy that a very rich person should leave his kids enough to do anything but not enough to do nothing. That seems rational. Well, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Sting, Elton John, Simon Cowell, Jackie Chan, George Lucas, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Joanne Crawford, and many others have all made commitments saying that, that they're gonna have their children make their own way in life. They're not gonna give them the, the golden spoon, so to speak. Some of these people have pledged, um, like uh, Sting, <laughs> have pledged that they're gonna spend all their money before they die, so you better not expect anything, kids. Um, others, like Bill Gates, have, uh, and, and um, a whole group of others, have agreed that they're gonna give 99% of their wealth away um, in, in charitable giving. Uh, before they die, and they're working hard at that. And when you have billions and billions of dollars, it's apparently hard to give it all away. So um, I, I hope they, they do a good job at that. But there's, there's something about this culture that is a, it, it's got a disconnect. When we think of inheritance today, um, we think of the golden spoon if you're really wealthy, right? Um, or nothing <laughs> if you're more like my family. And that's not how God saw inheritance in the Bible. And it's important that we understand a difference. Uh, Back in the time of Israel, God designed a cyclical economy. Not just a yearly economy, but a cyclical economy that that was generational. And it was an economy that was based on the land. Each family was given a piece of land, and they were supposed to divide that land among their children when they died. And then the person who was the oldest, who had the, the, would get the largest inheritance, but he'd also get the largest responsibility for taking care of the rest of their family. And you, you got this land, and uh, if the family was, in, you know, was productive and industrious, they would gain wealth from the land. The, the wealth of the people was founded in the land. And it, it had to be extracted from the land with a bit of hard work, you know? Cattle and industry and, and um, farming and things like this. Um, and, and if the family was in a bind, let's say they made a bad, mis- a, a bad bet, and that happens sometimes, you make a mistake, and, and well, they could, they could lend out their land, lease out their land to somebody, essentially, and, uh, and that loan that they took from that person, their land would pay back, right? And, Uh, after 50 years, every 50 years, I should say, then all of those things were reset. The land went back to the family of origin, and the loans were all forgiven. It was all finished, right? And what this meant is that um, it it was an inheritance that demanded hard work in order for it to be wealthy. Um, And it meant that you could take the wealth of your parents that they, uh, that they provided you in the land um, and, and you could pass that down to your children in an inheritance. But it also meant that if you really flubbed up and you had nothing but debt, you weren't going to pass that debt um, on to your children forever. So generational wealth was limited and generational poverty was cut short. A really fantastic system when you look at, at God's economy. It doesn't match with the Republicans, and it doesn't match with the Democrats. It doesn't match with the independents, and it doesn't match, well, with any political party in the United States today. So don't try looking for it in our culture today. But that's what God intended when he looked at inheritance. Now, not only do you inherit the land, but you also inherit a name. It meant something to be the son of Jesse. It meant something to be the son of Caleb, the giant killer, right? To be a descendant of of that clan that has the mountain. There's a great hymn that we don't have in our hymnal called I Want That Mountain. If you've ever sung it, you know what I mean. It's a good good song about Caleb and conquering the mountain there. But if it meant something, that you were inheriting Caleb's land. Now there's one inheritance, uh, one promise, Well, actually, I wanna tell you about a family before I tell you about this, promise. There's a family called the Rachabites, and Jeremiah has a little interaction with him, and I think it's valuable when you think about the name of somebody, the character that you're getting, right, Caleb is the giant killer, well, the Rachabites, uh, they were offered wine, and I think Jeremiah did this uh, for the illustration of it, but he sat them down in a meeting, he called them together, and they came, and and he put some wine in front of them, and he said, drink. And they're like, no. And here's what they say in Jeremiah 35, 6. We will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Raqib, our father, commanded us, you shall drink no wine, neither you, neither you nor your sons forever, that you may live many days in the land you, where you sojourn. My dad's dad's dad, right, once said, this is how our family is, is run. This is the principles that we'll be, abide by and we inherited his name. So we inherited that culture, that, that, that um, principle, right? There, there's something about a name that's really valuable and important that we don't often think about in our culture today. So I'd like to, with that background, I'd like to think about a promise, the one promise in the Bible that's the most significant of any promise, any inheritance that you can find anywhere. Now it begins, with Adam and is passed to his son, Seth. And I'd like to read it in Genesis five, verses one through three. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he created him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them Adam, man. I just thought that's fun. When they were created, he named them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. Uh, The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Now, I want you to pay attention to that. We're gonna come back to it in a little bit. Adam was made in the likeness of who? And Seth was made in the likeness of Adam. That's an important difference, and we'll come back to it in a a moment. The inheritance that Adam passed down to Seth was a promise, and and it was a responsibility. Like the inheritance of the land, you you pass on the security of the land, but you also pass on the responsibility of taking care of the land, and of taking care of the family. And it's a similar thing with Adam. He passes down a promise, a security, and he passes down a responsibility. The, promises, uh, the promise uh, was a promise that God had given to Adam and Eve, and, and it was twofold. It had two parts. Uh, the first part we find in Genesis 2.17 that says, if you eat of the fruit of this tree, then you will surely die. That's an important promise. It's, a, it's kind of a, a law, a boundary, right? And it's a, it's a promise of judgment. And then there's the second promise, which is the pom- promise of redemption. And it goes like this in Genesis 3.15, after they had sinned, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So Eve's offspring will strike the serpent's head. They'll bruise the serpent's head. And what happens when you strike a serpent's head? It's the only part of the body where you can genuinely kill the snake, right? When you you, um, mess up its head. Well, so this is a promise that while they allowed sin to enter, remember that we talked about last week, through Adam, we've all inherited sin. Thank you, Adam, right? Uh, But but there's a promise of redemption. While we inherit that through Adam, God gives this promise that I'm going to end evil and I'm going to redeem you. It's a promise uh, of a child who would crush the serpent's head. It's the promise of Jesus. Seth inherited uh, this promise of judgment and this promise of redemption, and he also inherited a responsibility to make sure that his kids knew what these promises were and were faithfully following God. So Seth told his son Enosh, and uh, Enosh told his son Kenan all about these promises, and then Kenan told Mahalalel, and Mahalalel passed this on to Jared, and Jared happens to be the father of Enoch. And Jared seems to have faithfully passed these promises, and this faithful following God onto Enoch. But Enoch's experience was maybe a little different than Seth's. Enoch by the time he was born, it was 622 years since Adam had received these promises. And a lot can happen in 622 years. How long has the United States been around? Not that long, right? <laughs> 622 years ago, we're looking at uh, the, the, the Middle Ages there, right? And all kinds of interesting things are going on in Europe and um, what's America? Now, let's be honest with ourselves. We have a short attention span in fact, not just our attention span, but our whole lives are short. Even by comparison, the lives of the people who lived before the flood, who are like 1,000 years, 900 years, 800 years, 700 years long, they're still short by comparison to God's view. God's got a, a long view, a long game that he's playing, and he, he marks out time in millennia, right? Our day, the, the thing that we mark our time with, is like 1,000 years to God. A millennia is how he marks his time. And so when we see um, God's promise, we look at the moment, right? The day, the week, the, the, the month, maybe the year. Um, but, but in our lifetime, if we don't see God's promises fulfilled, we're like, hey, this isn't happening. But, but God doesn't see things in our perspective. He's got a much bigger perspective in mind than we do. Now, there's a, a letter that Peter wrote, the second letter that Peter wrote, where he talks about something he calls scoffers, people who, well, they don't believe what God has said. And this is important for Enoch's day, and it's very relevant in our day, let's look at it. Second Peter chapter 3, verses one through four. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. These are the promises that God's given through the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing just as they were from the beginning of creation. I haven't seen any change, it must not be true. Do do you ever see people who scoff at the promises of God because we haven't seen them happen, or they haven't seen them happen? This was Enoch's experience. Enoch lived in a day of scoffers. Let's go back to Genesis chapter five. And let's read his story in Genesis 5, 21 to 24. There's eight verses in the Bible that talk about Enoch. And we're going to read all eight and, uh, and apply them. And uh, I think by the time we get to Jude, you'll see why this is a very appropriate uh, sermon for a communion service. Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. We don't have a lot to go on to understand Enoch's story, but I think we know just enough that we can piece together some of his uh, timeline, you might say. What we do know is that he walked with God Now, some read Enoch's story and they think, man, Enoch was such a righteous, holy, and and just insert the word, because this is what we really mean, sinless man, that that God had to take him to heaven. He didn't have any other choice. Uh, One guy said that uh, Enoch walked with God and God enjoyed his walks with Enoch so much that he, he decided to take him to heaven so that they could walk together all the more. It sounds good and I, I love the sentiment, um, but sometimes it makes us think um, that, that Enoch was different than us and we put him on a pedestal, right? Uh, now maybe Enoch's walk with God was some holy sinlessness that um, we have yet to attain to, and and that's why God took him to heaven. Maybe, um, maybe uh, the, this relationship thing, you know, that God just loved walking with him, and so he took him to heaven to walk with him more. Uh, maybe it's very physical, like like Enoch. In the morning, uh, he'd he'd uh, step out of his his uh, tent or. Uh, whatever it was that he lived in and, and he'd walk to the end of the sheep pen where he'd meet God who was waiting for him and there they'd go through the, the, uh, the woods and sit down under a big tree and talk. and right? maybe, it was, maybe it was very physical and real and relational like you might go on a walk with a friend, maybe. Whether it was this sinlessness or physical walk with God, this experience of Enoch seems beyond us. It seems like that's not something you and I can experience. Um, or, or if it is, uh, man, it's, we haven't gotten there yet because um, I don't feel God's presence like seems like Enoch would've, or I, I haven't yet been translated to heaven like Enoch was, right? Now, since we only have these eight verses in the Bible, we, we, we need to piece a few more things together before we tell the whole story of Enoch. Um, there's two more passages. One is Hebrews 11 and verses 5 and 6, and then the, the, the last one is Jude 10 uh, and 10 through 15. Let's read Hebrews 11. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Underscore that word in your Bible if you haven't yet. By what? By faith, that's an important clue as to what Enoch's walk was like. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Notice this very important section in Hebrews 11. He says that faith believes that God has promised things, including a reward. What's the reward that God promised Adam and Eve? It was Jesus, wasn't it? Jesus, the one who would uh, crush the serpent's head and provide redemption for mankind. That's the reward, redemption. You have to believe it by faith. And apparently Enoch did believe the promise, even though he lived in an age of scoffers, people who said, God doesn't exist. Now let's look at Jude chapter, uh, verse 10 through 15. I I went back uh, to long before the story of Enoch seems to start in Jude because uh, Jude's, this context is super important to understand who Enoch is. But these people scoff at things they do not understand. Uh, These are the scoffers, remember? They scoff at people, uh, at things they do not understand, like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them. And so they bring about their own destruction. What sorrow awaits them for they follow in the footsteps of Cain who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money and like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. When these people eat with you in your fellowship meals concerning the Lord's love, I'm just gonna pause there for a moment so you can recognize why this is valuable for communion. (laughs) When these people eat with you in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love, they are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They're like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They're like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They're like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been polluted, or pulled up by their roots. So we're talking about scoffers, people who don't believe the promise. They're like rain clouds that give no rain. They're like waters with reefs in them that will damage your ship, right? This is not a good uh, picture to have for people who don't believe God's promises. But notice what happens when Enoch is introduced. They are like wild waves of the sea, churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. They're like wandering stars, doomed forever to blackest darkness. Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people. He said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones. To execute judgment on the people of the world. I I separate these two ideas because I think they're important to separate. The Lord is coming with countless thousands. Is that a good promise? It's a promise of redemption for all those who believe in his name. But, But then there's the second half to execute judgment on the people of the world. The scoffers, the ones who reject God's promises, who ignore the inheritance that God has given them he will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done. And, and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. From these few verses, we find out a few things. Um, Enoch, oh, I'm going to skip that verse. Um, Enoch walked with God. We already, we already uh, laid that down. Um, Enoch's faith pleased God. Faith was the operating principle of his life. Uh, Faith in what? faith in the promises, right? And then God gave Enoch a responsibility, the responsibility of a prophet, which interestingly enough is the responsibility of a father. Because like Seth, Enoch was passing down the promise, the twofold promise that there would be redemption for those who believe and judgment for those who reject uh, God's promises, right? Now his day, um, Oh, and, and, and one last thing we learned, Enoch didn't die. He was taken to heaven with God. Now Enoch most likely knew Adam because Adam lived for 308 years after Enoch was born. Uh, Enoch's great, great, great grandfather was Adam's son, Seth. And, And so we find there's this faithful passing down of the promises to Enoch. And, uh, and and not just the promises, because when uh, the Bible talks about Seth, it talks about him as a shepherd and a farmer. Right? They built tents and hung out in the mountains, and and uh, they they made their living off the land. In contrast, there was Cain. And the Bible tells us that Cain, um, after he killed Abel, he fled and he built cities and his descendants were iron workers or metal workers and musicians and artists. And and there's some interesting things in there. But but what you find is that they were known for their debauchery, for their evil, uh, for their idolatry, their selfishness, their cruelty. Um, And And as they progressed in the rebellion against God, they progressed in their scoffing at God's promises. Is there judgment? Is there a promise? Is there redemption? And well, even in Seth's day, Seth saw, I'm not Seth, uh, Enoch. Enoch saw Adam die. He saw Seth die during his lifetime. When you see godly people die, without having inherited the reward, it's tempting to think that there's no reward, that the promises aren't real. And then you see Cain and his children doing wicked, horrible, selfish, cruel things, and they don't get punished, it seems. They have the same life as Adam and Seth. Is there really a promise? Is there really an inheritance? Hmm. Enoch heard about God's love for Adam And God's love for Seth. He heard about God's love through his father, Jared. And and he contrasted the things he heard about God from his family with the things that he saw in the world and the selfishness and cruelty. And and more than anything else, Enoch wanted to know God and he wanted to be known by God. And so you could find Enoch in the garden. You could find Enoch um, out in the sheep pen, right? You could find Enoch um, standing before the garden of Eden at that altar where God had first taught Adam and Eve how to to offer the sacrifice that pointed to the promise of this son that would come, this child that would come to crush Satan's head. And he would stand there with his his offering, maybe kneeling, bowing, and he would ask God for wisdom, for knowledge. He He would pour his questions out to God, and God met him there. he struggled with the question, why doesn't God punish the wicked? Why doesn't he reward those who follow him with all their hearts? And he asked these questions to God. And after, after he asked these questions, God told him things. God gave him visions, apparently, of the future. You can find in a book called Patriarchs and Prophets, fantastic read on the, the, the patriarchs. Um, chapter six talks about Seth and Enoch, and it, and it talks about this prophecy, right? God gives visions to prophets, doesn't he? And in Jude, we, we see Enoch confidently describing the judgment that would take place. And, and so we get an idea that God gave him visions of the future visions of seeing the final end of sin and the destruction of the wicked and the coming of the redeemer. Uh, He saw Jesus' ministry and death on the cross and he saw Jesus raised from the tomb and he saw the righteous raised to life at Jesus' second coming. He saw the reward and he saw the judgment and he tells the people, there is someone coming and he's gonna bring a reward and he's going to execute judgment. These promises are real. Now, Enoch, in his life, in his prophecy is the answer to the doubt and confusion and wickedness of his time. He's he's clarifying what God is really wanting them to know. And, And he's also the evidence of the reward that God has promised to give. The fact that God took him to heaven is not evidence of Enoch's holiness. The fact that God took him to heaven is evidence that God's promises are real. Enoch is a down payment that the reward of redemption is real. Enoch's life is a prophecy. God will redeem those who follow him. I don't know if Enoch lived a sinless life. I I sincerely doubt it. I'm I'm almost 100% confident he didn't. Uh, And I'm, I'm pretty confident that sinlessness was never on Enoch's mind. That wasn't his point. His focus was, I wanna know God. And I wanna be known by God. And, and as a result of this, each time that, that Enoch spent time with God, as, as he hung out with him and asked him questions and, and laid his life before him and surrendered to him, uh, the power of God's love began to reflect in Enoch's life. He certainly was a man that followed God. And, and everybody knew Enoch is a man that follows God. And so when Enoch was taken to heaven, when Enoch was no more after he went to the Garden of Eden with his offering, people began to look for him. And they, they knew that he was taken to heaven with God because they knew that he was the kind of guy that would inherit the promise of God. By faith, Enoch believed God's promises. God did not take him because he was holy, but because he had a message for the world. You have an inheritance. In Psalm 85:10. The psalmist gives us a prophecy. He says, unfailing love and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. When did this happen? This happened on the cross. When God, the the promised one, came to be with us as a son, Jesus, he gave his life and on the cross, he fulfilled the promise of judgment, right? The, The law requires death for the sin. Right? And when we have sinned, we, well, that promise needs to be fulfilled in our lives. Jesus, he became sin for us. So that, and he took our sin and died for us so that we wouldn't have to. Justice, righteousness is met on the cross. But but not just righteousness and truth, but peace and love. Because he came in love to give us mercy and redemption. And because he died, we can be redeemed. That word redeem is such a cool word. In in the last message, we talked about the son of God and the idea that we are children of Adam. How was Seth um, made? Was he in God's image or in Adam's? Genesis 5 says that Seth was made in Adam's image. Adam was made in the image of God. And I don't know about you, but I'd like to be made in the image of God. And instead of inheriting death and sin from Adam, I want the inheritance of life and the redemption that comes through Jesus. What about you? That word redemption becomes exciting. It's life impacting inheritance that we get when we become the child of God. What inheritance has God given you? In the service that we're about to do, the communion service, we have an inheritance. And it's, it's strange. We drink this juice and we eat this little cracker and we say that it's the blood and body of Jesus. And what we're saying is, as we participate in this ceremony, we're saying that we commit our lives to God. That, that Jesus is my all in all. In Colossians one twenty seven, Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. In you. And, that, and so we take Jesus body and Jesus blood into us in a, in a symbolic way. We're saying, I want Jesus to live in me. The condition here is that you believe his promises. You see the scoffers that come and participate in the Lord's supper without believing the promise. They're like, they're like clouds that bring no rain and reefs in your ocean that break your ships. Don't do it. If you don't believe then don't participate, because this is a public testimony that you are a child of God, and that you claim his promises, his inheritance of of redemption. God's desire is to be as close to you as he was to Enoch. And I want to point out something. God walked with Enoch, but Jesus promised to live in you. Which one is more intimate, to go on a walk for an hour in a day, or to, to live with See God is inviting you to a deeper experience with him than even Enoch had. Jesus says abide in me and I in you. Someday soon Jesus is going to he's going to return and he's going to fulfill all his promises. He's going to take us to live with him. And every time we participate in this symbol, in this ceremony of of the communion, we are we're recognizing the gift of redemption that God has given on the cross. But we're also believing the promise that Jesus is going to come again soon. In 1 Corinthians 11:26, we're told, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you see the two? We look back at his death and we look forward to his coming. This is what we proclaim every time we participate in the Lord's Supper.